Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic abuse, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On January 4, 2015, Shelley Gilbert strolled through Manhattan, heading for a sandwich shop. The sun was shining and a gentle breeze was blowing. It felt like the world had brightened to match her mood. That afternoon, after months of no contact, her son Tommy had finally paid his parents a visit. He wanted to talk to his father, Tom Sr., about business. For Shelley, this was excellent news. She could imagine Tommy's future going the way she'd always hoped. He'd have a successful career and settle down as a happy, well-adjusted adult. Maybe now they'd be a family again. But as she continued to walk, a queasy feeling bubbled up in her stomach. It all felt too good to be true. Had Tommy really changed in the past few months? She remembered all the years of fighting, the threats Tommy had made toward his own father. Maybe she shouldn't have left the two of them alone after all. Suddenly worried, Shelley turned on her heels and sped back to the apartment. She burst through the door, half hoping her concerns were overblown. But when she stepped inside, she found the apartment was quiet, eerily quiet. With fear coursing through her bones, Shelley rushed to the bedroom. She imagined her husband and her son chatting casually as they watched football on TV. But as she got closer, her fear turned to dread. Her husband, Tom Sr., was lying on the floor, not moving. She could already see the dark, red stain forming around his head, like a gruesome, bloody halo. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we introduced Tommy Gilbert Jr., a man who seemed to have the world at his fingertips. He was rich, privileged, and handsome, but his troubled mind disrupted his closest relationships. As Tommy's behavior grew more violent, it left him feeling desperate, alone, and on the hunt for revenge. This week, we'll follow the ways Tommy's family tried and failed to keep him in check, treating his worsening mental state as nothing more than a phase. Tommy refuses help, treatment, and medication, setting him on a dark path that ends in tragedy. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In the spring of 2014, Tommy Gilbert Jr. bought a gun. For years, he'd felt like he couldn't trust anyone. His friends, his parents, even his doctors were suspect. 
In his mind, they only pretended to care about him, feigning concern for his health while secretly plotting against him. He felt helpless to stop them, weak in the face of their betrayals. But not anymore. Now, with the cold steel in his hands, he was safe. If anyone messed with him, he knew just what to do. No one else in Tommy's life likely knew about the gun, which he kept hidden in a safe in his apartment. His parents certainly didn't know, but Tom Sr. and Shelley were aware that their son was unwell, that he struggled with serious delusions and severe paranoia. They had tried to get him help to no avail. Tommy resisted his parents' desperate appeals. The more they pleaded, the further they pushed him away. By 2014, he was refusing to take any medication. He became engulfed in the dark and disturbing stories his mind concocted. Despite the paranoia raging inside him, Tommy was convinced he was in control of his life. In May, he even began dating someone new, a woman named Brianna Swanson. Within days of meeting, the two moved in together and made plans to summer in the Hamptons. There was just one issue. Tommy's parents were renting out their Hamptons home for some extra cash, so the new couple had nowhere to stay. But Tommy always found a way to get what he wanted. He couldn't live in the house, but that didn't mean he couldn't be on the property. He ordered a storage shed and had it installed on the property's edge. He didn't bother to ask his parents or to warn the family currently renting the house. Soon enough, Tom Sr. and Shelley received an alarming call explaining their son was effectively squatting on their property. The Gilberts were furious. Yet again, Tommy had thrown their lives into disarray with no concern for the consequences. He hadn't even paid for the shed himself. He simply forwarded the bill to his parents. And though they were shocked at their son's antics, that's exactly what the Gilberts did. They paid for the shed and quietly had it removed. Tommy's behavior in situations like these could suggest a lack of empathy. According to a 2011 study in psychological medicine, this is a common issue for people who have schizophrenia. The condition was one of several mental illnesses Tommy was diagnosed with around this time. Tommy didn't seem to care how his actions impacted anyone else, even his own family. He was perfectly willing to risk their well-being if it meant he got what he wanted. Even after the entire shed fiasco, he was completely unfazed. He and Brianna found somewhere else to live, and Tommy spent his days as he always had, surfing at the beach. But this time, as he settled into his usual routine, Tommy was unable to shake the feeling that he had unfinished business. Ever since his dramatic falling out with Peter Smith, he couldn't stop thinking about his former roommate. In his mind, Peter was the reason his social life was in shambles. Tommy needed vindication. And more than that, he wanted Peter to feel the same humiliation that he had. His first move was to attack Peter's personal life. Tommy called the ASPCA tip line three separate times to report Peter was abusing his dog, Rocket. Agents eventually showed up at Peter's home to investigate, leaving Peter flabbergasted. Luckily, the visit was a short one. Peter was clearly taking good care of Rocket and the abuse allegations were obviously untrue. 
But to Peter, the situation was far from settled. He couldn't prove it, but he knew exactly where the calls were coming from. Rattled and alarmed by Tommy's latest scheme, he took matters into his own hands. He called his attorney and filed a restraining order against his former roommate. This was the second time Peter had done this. Once again, Tommy was forbidden from contacting Peter or going anywhere near him. This may have been a comfort to Peter, but to Tommy, it was yet another ploy to embarrass him. Tommy's plan had backfired. Though he was determined to take another shot down the line, for the time being, he backed off. The latest confrontation left Tommy's parents more concerned than ever about their son's well-being. They tried to think of ways to help him, but they were still at a loss of how exactly to do it. Tom Sr. was preoccupied with Tommy's professional future, as if getting his son a stable job would fix the other issues in his life. He even enlisted the help of his older brother, Beck, who offered to help Tommy find work, but Tommy wasn't interested. By August, it was clear that things were just as bad as ever, but Tom Sr. was determined to show his son that his actions had real financial consequences. He decided to tighten the reins. Over lunch, he explained to Tommy that he was decreasing his weekly allowance from $800 to $600. It was a relatively mild move, considering the stunts his son had pulled, and Tom Sr. hoped this slight nudge would finally get Tommy to snap out of it, so to speak. Tommy saw the move very, very differently. To him, it proved his parents were plotting to destroy him. He left the lunch furious, convinced Tom Sr. was sabotaging his every move. After that disastrous conversation, Tommy's mental health got even worse. He became paranoid that his new girlfriend, Brianna, was also scheming behind his back. He accused her of breaking into his safe. For Tommy, each one of these imagined betrayals came from a single source, Peter Smith. He was sure that somehow Peter was behind all of it. So on September 1st, he made a decision to confront Peter, restraining order or not. He knew exactly where Peter would be on that warm summer evening, at the beach, hanging with his friends. Their friends, the ones who abandoned Tommy not so long ago. As soon as he spotted them, he approached the group, acting as if nothing was wrong. He ignored the concerned glances and walked right up to Peter to ask if the two of them could speak in private. But Peter knew better than to play into Tommy's antics. In a measured voice, he wished Tommy the best, but told him he couldn't be in his life anymore. It wasn't the response Tommy wanted, and he refused to take no for an answer. He demanded that Peter talk to him and told him it would be his last chance to make things right. Eventually, Tommy became aggressive, even violent, and Peter's friends had to physically hold him back. Tommy left the beach, bitter and frustrated, once again, his plan had blown up in his face. He'd been the one disgraced in front of their friends while Peter's reputation remained intact. It was the final straw. Two weeks later, Tommy woke up before sunrise. In the dark, he drove his car to a nearby cemetery and parked in a lot in the back. As the sun peeked above the tree line, he wandered among the graves, 
passing through the cemetery toward the homes on the other side of the street. A little before 5 a.m., he stood outside Peter's house. A Molotov cocktail sloshed quietly in his hand as he crossed the lawn. The neighborhood was perfectly quiet. It was still too early for anyone else to be on the road. Tommy crept up to a window on the south side of the home and looked inside. No movement. He took a few steps back, lit up the end of the rag, and hurled it through the window. It took four fire departments over three hours to control the blaze. While some parts of the home remained standing, the interior was ravaged by fire and smoke. Once it was safe to enter the house, firefighters were relieved to discover that despite the significant damage, no one was harmed. Still, it was clear that the fire had been intentional. The police asked the Smith family if they could think of anyone who might want to hurt them. And immediately, Peter named the one person at the top of his mind, Tommy Gilbert Jr. But when the police questioned Tommy about the incident, he denied everything. Without any hard evidence to connect him to the fire, the authorities had no choice but to let him go. Once again, Tommy was able to escape any legal repercussions for his actions. Though, that didn't stop people from suspecting Tommy. His neighbors and former friends all assumed he was to blame. Tommy's parents were incensed by the attack, but they weren't upset with Tommy. They were angry at Peter. They believed he was fueling mere speculation as a way of getting back at Tommy for their terrible falling out. The Gilberts had always been soft on their son. Even now, as his mental state declined, it seemed impossible for them to accept that their son had a capacity for violence. It was as if they still wanted to believe Tommy could change his behavior on his own, even though that had proven impossible. Perhaps that was the reason why Tom Sr. and Shelley continued to try to solve his problems with money. They might have believed that taking some of his cash away would also make their son's troubling behavior disappear. But the more money they took, the worse his antics became. In the wake of the failed attack on Peter, Tommy's paranoia took a nosedive. His relationship with Brianna fell apart, leaving him more alone than ever. In October, his own psychiatrist stopped treating Tommy as his patient, citing Tommy's refusal to follow any treatment plan. Tommy was sure the entire world was conspiring against him. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. Tommy looked online for any course that would teach him how to defend himself, jailbreaking, enhanced encryption, and even firearm training. If everyone else was trying to sabotage him, Tommy figured he needed to learn how to defend himself. As his paranoia escalated, he contemplated further action against his army of enemies. So far, his efforts had been a total failure. But with his new set of skills, Tommy was sure that this time, things would be different. He'd make them all pay. Coming up, Tommy pays his parents an unfriendly visit. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, 
Join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. By the end of 2014, Tommy Gilbert had lost nearly everything. He had no friends, no job, and no money. Throughout the year, his parents had been steadily docking his weekly allowance, hoping it would somehow create a positive change in his behavior. In December, Tom Sr. slashed it again, bringing the amount to $400 a week. To Tommy, this was just more proof that his father was trying to ruin his life, but it wouldn't stop him from getting what he wanted. He knew that his mother, Shelley, was a softer touch. Both of Tommy's parents were concerned for their son's well-being, but Shelley was more willing to comply with Tommy's request. So when he sent her messages asking for more money, she obliged. Without telling her husband, she secretly wired cash into her son's account. To Shelley, this act of generosity was probably a way to stay close to her son. She took these interactions as an opportunity to remind Tommy that both she and Tom Sr. cared about him. They wanted him to get his life back on track. For parents of adult children with mental illness, the line between supportive and enabling behavior can get blurry. Parents have an instinctive urge to protect their children, one that burns even stronger when the child is sick. In Tommy's case, Shelley's extra help, which came from her desire to help her son, likely enabled him to continue down a destructive path. While his behavior was by no means his mother's fault, the lack of consequences did little to keep him on the straight and narrow. Despite her best intentions, Shelley's attempts to help her son may have been a hindrance. But Tommy didn't seem to care either way. All he wanted was more money, and it didn't matter how he got it. Around Christmas, he made his most shocking move yet. On a whim, he called a Hamptons real estate agent and told her he'd like to put his family's beach house up for sale. The home would easily sell for millions of dollars, and Tommy figured this was an easy way to become self-sufficient. After a brief call, he and the agent agreed to talk again after the holidays were over. Tom Sr. and Shelley had no idea that their son had done this. They were busy working on their own plans to get their son back on the path to success, which, in their minds, meant more financial restriction. Tom Sr. thought that lowering Tommy's allowance again was the right move. Little did he know, Tommy was far past the point of caring about his allowance. He had something much bigger in mind, a plan that would change everything. On January 4th, 2015, Tommy headed over to his parents' apartment and knocked on the door. When Shelley went to answer, she was shocked to see her son standing on the threshold. Tommy hadn't visited in about five months. He hadn't even come over on Christmas. She quickly welcomed Tommy inside, hoping this would be a positive visit. At first, things seemed good. Tommy appeared calm, 
He told Shelly that he wanted to talk to his dad about business, and Shelly was ecstatic. This was the moment that she and Tom Sr. had been waiting for. Tommy was finally ready to get his life on track. Tommy told his mom he was hungry and she offered to make him something to eat. Instead, he insisted she leave the apartment to get him a sandwich. Shelly didn't want to start an argument, so she agreed and headed out the door. As she walked down the street, Shelly mused about the happy future that she, her husband, and her son would enjoy. Finally, things would be normal again. But that hope only lasted about a block before Shelly started to second-guess herself. Suddenly, she felt uneasy. Maybe it hadn't been a good idea to leave her son and husband alone together. They'd always had a tumultuous relationship, and she was sure they would be discussing the cuts to Tommy's allowance, a topic that would get both of them fired up. Suddenly, full of anxiety, she turned around and rushed back to the apartment. When she got to the front door, she paused to think. Fear was clawing at her insides, but still she knew it was possible she was overreacting. If Tommy was having a constructive, positive conversation with his dad, she didn't want to barge in and interrupt them. She cupped her ear to the door, trying to catch the sound of talking, but she couldn't hear a thing. Finally, unable to wait any longer, she went inside. And right away, she could tell something was wrong. The apartment was dead silent. No voices, no movement, nothing. She rushed toward the bedroom, hoping to find her husband and son watching the football game together. As soon as she stepped foot in the bedroom, her hope evaporated. Lying on the floor was Tom Sr., bleeding from a gunshot wound to the head. The weapon, a 40 caliber Glock, was in his left hand. To anyone else, it might have looked like a suicide, but not to Shelley. Instinctively, she knew exactly what had happened. Dread, fear, and sorrow rose up inside her and she fought the urge to vomit. With trembling hands, she picked up the phone and dialed 911, telling the operator that her husband had been shot. When they asked her if she knew who'd killed him, she answered calmly. It was her own son, Tommy. A few minutes later, police and paramedics arrived at the apartment. At 3.42, Tom Gilbert Sr. was pronounced dead. The officers asked Shelley what had happened, and she recounted the afternoon as best as she could. She called Tommy several times, but he didn't answer. After about 30 minutes of nonstop calling, he phoned her back. The police told Shelley to act as normal as possible to avoid panicking her son. She took a deep breath to try and calm her nerves and ease the shaking in her hands. Then she answered the phone. Trying to sound as calm as possible, Shelly asked Tommy what had happened to his father, but Tommy, probably aware his mother wasn't alone, didn't take the bait. So Shelly changed her tactic. She asked Tommy if he was still hungry and he said he was. He suggested they meet up for lunch and told her he'd pick a place to eat and call her back shortly. Shelly agreed, doing everything in her power to hide the terror coursing through her mind. Tommy, meanwhile, seemed unperturbed, like he hadn't just murdered his own father in cold blood. 
Despite the phone call, investigators felt confident that Tommy wouldn't be calling his mother back or meeting her for lunch. To cover all their bases, two police officers headed over to Tommy's apartment to check if he was there. Tommy lived on the ground floor of his building, so the officers could see into his bedroom through the windows. Peering inside, they saw that the TV was on, playing an episode of The Simpsons to an empty, darkened room. The two policemen went around to the front of the building and knocked on Tommy's door. No answer. All they could do was watch the building from their police cruiser, hoping to catch Tommy if and when he decided to come home. Little did they know, their suspect was already inside. Tommy had ignored the police pounding on his door and sat at the desk in his bedroom, frantically erasing the information on his electronics. He wiped his laptop and phone and disabled his geolocation apps. He even Googled his father's name, curious to find out if the world knew what he'd done. There were already a few articles in circulation, and Tommy paused his work to read through them. After a few hours had passed, one of the officers staking out Tommy's apartment went outside to smoke. As he did, he passed by Tommy's window again to take another look inside. He expected to see the same strange scene, but now the blinds in the apartment were closed and the TV was turned off. For hours, he and his partner had been waiting for Tommy to return, and he'd been there the entire time. They were shocked. Tommy had killed his father and then simply gone home. Now that they knew for sure Tommy was inside, the two officers leapt into action, calling for backup. Within 30 minutes, SWAT team agents crowded around the entrance to Tommy's apartment. They banged on the front door, demanding he open up. There was no response. After 10 minutes of pounding, the officers decided to change their tactics. They needed to see inside, so one of the officers knocked the peephole out of the door. That's when they heard Tommy's voice, quiet and calm. He casually told the officers he was on the phone with his lawyer. They ordered him to unlock the door and let them in. And shockingly, Tommy obliged. Around 11 p.m., over seven hours after Tommy shot his father in the head, he was arrested and let out of the apartment in handcuffs. Even now, surrounded by police, Tommy behaved as if nothing out of the ordinary was happening. For years, Tommy had operated like this, lashing out and then acting like everything was fine, as if his violence was just a misunderstanding that could be explained away. But all of that was over now. Tommy's life would never be the same. Coming up, Tommy's case goes to trial. Now, back to the story. On January 4th, 2015, Tommy Gilbert Jr. was arrested for killing his father, 70-year-old Tom Gilbert Sr. Things moved pretty quickly after that. 30-year-old Tommy was charged with second-degree murder and the unlawful possession of a weapon. He was taken to Rikers Island to await his trial. Even though he was in jail, Tommy didn't seem to grasp the gravity of the situation. He still somehow believed he was going to get off scot-free and return to his normal life. When he spoke with the few acquaintances he still had, Tommy asked them if they'd throw a benefit on his behalf to raise money for the legal fees. They were shocked. Who would show up to a benefit for a rich kid who'd murdered his dad? 
Tommy didn't seem to understand the absurdity of his request. At Rikers, Tommy insisted he had no mental health issues and didn't require any medications. All of that was a lie, and the institution's clinician, Dr. Harris, wasn't buying it. He put Tommy on suicide watch and continued to monitor him closely. Dr. Harris noted Tommy was eerily calm in the face of his crimes. He believed Tommy was dissociated from reality. When someone is in a dissociative state, they lose all connection to their own identity. Their thoughts, feelings, and even memories fade into the background. This state can also make it difficult to understand or interact properly with the world. Tommy was well-spoken and alert, but didn't seem to be capable of recognizing reality. In an attempt to alleviate this condition, he prescribed Tommy the antipsychotic medication, Risperdal, but Tommy refused to take it. And soon, he was refusing to even speak with Dr. Harris, insisting his lawyers had advised him not to, a lie Tommy crafted to avoid treatment. Yet, his relationship with his lawyers wasn't any better. Tommy was being represented by Alex Spiro, a highly capable defense attorney who would later go on to defend celebrities like Jay-Z, Mick Jagger, and Elon Musk. Alex wanted to get Tommy deemed unfit to stand trial, but Tommy would barely cooperate. For one thing, he didn't believe he was sick in the first place. It was everyone else that was crazy, not him. Plus, he had always been deeply concerned about his reputation and didn't want his medical history put out for the world to see. Still, it was likely the best shot that the defense had. So reluctantly, Tommy agreed to go along with Alex's plan. In August, he and Alex met with two court-appointed psychiatrists. Tommy barely spoke with the doctors, becoming evasive and shutting down completely when they tried to get him to talk about the murder. He was hostile, paranoid, and seemed to think they were his enemies. By the end of the sessions, the doctors decided Tommy was unfit to stand trial and diagnosed him with unspecified schizophrenia and several other psychotic disorders. But their findings didn't mean Tommy wouldn't stand trial eventually. The new plan was to move him to a facility for treatment and resume the proceedings when he was mentally capable. The prosecution, however, had their own thoughts on Tommy's mental state. They challenged the court's decision and asked the judge if Tommy could be reevaluated by an expert of their choosing. When Tommy met with the prosecution's expert in October, he was a completely different person. He was cooperative, candid, well-spoken, and answered all of the doctor's questions. His lawyer was shocked. Tommy was answering inquiries about his medical and psychiatric history, something he wouldn't even discuss with his own defense team. It's unclear why Tommy's behavior shifted so drastically from one evaluation to the next. It's possible Tommy was concealing his symptoms to present a healthy picture of himself to the psychiatrist, a process called dissimulation. According to a study in the Journal of the American Academy of Psychiatry and the Law, some defendants may unintentionally hide their symptoms in a forensic setting to appear mentally healthy. The patients will do this even if it's against their own self-interest and may potentially harm their defense. It's possible they don't even know that they're doing it. We can't say for sure if Tommy was dissimulating when he attended that second psychological evaluation, but it might explain his odd behavior. 
Regardless of his intent, by the end of the conversation, the doctor decided Tommy was healthy enough to stand trial. The judge ordered a competency hearing in which dozens of experts testified about Tommy's mental state and capabilities. The decision totally undermined all of the hard work his own lawyer had put in to get Tommy the help he clearly needed. But Tommy, for his part, didn't seem to understand that. On December 21st, the judge decided Tommy was fit to go to court. No one doubted his numerous and severe mental health issues, but that wasn't enough to stop the trial from happening. After that decision, Tommy's mental health plunged. He was more paranoid than ever, certain that other people were after him. He refused to cooperate with his legal team and ignored their attempts to get him to speak with experts and doctors. Months turned to years and Tommy's trial still hadn't begun. By 2017, he was virtually unrecognizable to the people who knew him. Gone were the days of the tanned, muscular socialite who had spent his afternoons surfing on the beach. This Tommy was painfully thin and pale, with tangled, greasy hair and a long beard. He had also stopped wearing shoes or socks out of fear of contamination, an old fixation that had come back to him with a vengeance at Rikers. He often fought with other inmates, always suspecting they were plotting against him for some unknown reason. Things weren't going well, but any hopes of getting him moved to a psychiatric facility were sabotaged by Tommy himself, since he still refused to cooperate with his defense. And in October 2017, Tommy was dealt another blow. His lawyer, Alex Spiro, quit, leaving another attorney named Arnold Levine in his place. But Tommy was just as distrustful of Arnold as he had been of Alex. Finally, on May 28, 2019, more than four years after Tom Gilbert Sr. had been murdered, the trial began. There was no question in anyone's mind that Tommy had killed his father. The question at the center of this case was, why? The prosecution argued Tommy had killed his father because of the cuts to his allowance. They claimed he was a spoiled brat a rich kid who'd never had a real job, no responsibilities, and had spent all of his time living large on his parents' dime. When his father finally dared to say no to him, Tommy snapped. For the prosecution, Tommy's psychiatric problems were not the driving force that led him to killing Tom Sr. It was all because of greed. For the defense, Tommy's mental and psychiatric history told another story. Arnold Levine presented the jury with Tommy's long list of doctors, the many illnesses he'd been diagnosed with, and the medications he'd been prescribed. He told the court about Tommy's delusions, his fear of contamination, as well as his beliefs that his father had tried to steal his soul and was controlling his mind. Tommy was spoiled, sure. He came from a privileged background, he had the best education money could buy. Anything he wanted in life was within reach everything but a healthy, neurotypical mind. Tommy was sick, and the defense argued that was why he killed his father. The opening statements were fairly typical, but when they were done, Tommy seemed determined to make things difficult. He objected to the prosecution's questions and loudly refuted their witnesses' testimonies. At the end of the first day, the judge told Tommy that if he didn't stop, he wouldn't be allowed back in the courtroom. Tommy agreed, but by the next day, he was back at it. 
He even objected to his own attorney's questions. At one point, he argued with the judge that it was his First Amendment right to directly address the jury. Despite his behavior during the trial, the proceedings continued in earnest. After a little more than two weeks, it was time for the jury to deliberate. And after a short period, they delivered their decision. Tommy Gilbert Jr. was guilty of second-degree murder. Though he looked upset, Tommy didn't seem to grasp what this meant. He even told one of his friends that he'd see them soon in New York. He was expecting to get out on bail soon. A few weeks later, on September 27th, he was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison, the maximum length possible for his crimes. His lawyers insisted on appealing, arguing his imprisonment was a miscarriage of justice. They believed that Tommy needed medical attention, not confinement. Following the highly publicized trial, many media outlets focus on the sensational aspects of Tommy's case. To anyone on the outside looking in, the terrible crime looked like a classic story of privilege and greed. Tommy was a rich kid from an affluent family and believed that everything he wanted, he deserved. From this perspective, the murder was nothing more than a temper tantrum of a spoiled brat. But to those closest to Tommy, it wasn't that simple. And no one knew that better than his mother, Shelley. From day one, she maintained that her son's problem was that he was sick, not spoiled. Throughout his trial and even afterward, she continued to advocate for him and for the rights of people struggling with mental illness. Shelley couldn't change what Tommy had done. She lost a husband, and in effect, she had also lost a son. Now, it seemed like the best thing she could do was to become a voice for those who might be struggling with the same things. Perhaps someone else's family might be spared a similar fate. Maybe they could get the happy ending she always hoped for. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with another episode. For more information on Thomas Gilbert Jr., amongst the many sources we used, we found Golden Boy, a murder among the Manhattan elite by John Glatt, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Sarah Hussein, edited by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Lainey Hobbs. (laughs) 